How many of you love your kids? <laughs> if anyone's not putting up their hand up, again, we might have to have words later. We love our kids. Um, and when I think about what we would be willing to do to help our kids, save our kids, um, protect our kids from pain, my guess is that there's a couple mama bear and papa bears out there who would do just about anything, right? Um, I've never had to throw myself in front of my children to save them from a car or an accident or anything like that. But I can tell you about one thing that was really hard for me to do in order to um, help my child. And it was very hard and it took some sacrifice and doing some things that were difficult on my part. Um, my daughter Katie, when she was uh, four years old, and she's not here because she lives in Michigan, so a couple stories are going to be about her today because um, it just makes it easier when she's not here. Um, anyway, she, um, when she was four years old, Kristen called me when I was at work and she said, you have to come home. Uh, Katie cut herself really, really big. What had happened is she was um, at a, our kitchen table standing on one of the chairs doing like a puzzle or something on the, you know, when they're like excited and they want to do something, they stand up on their chair so they can reach further. Well, unfortunately, her legs slipped out from under her, her um, the, the chin came down and she actually with her teeth bit completely through her lip right here. And it was about an inch and a half long cut. It was bleeding profusely. And um, thankfully, it was pretty straight. But we knew we had to go to the emergency room or urgent care in order to get it fixed up. So you go to urgent care. And Kristen is not the biggest blood person in the world. So that's my job to deal with. So I head over to urgent care with Katie. And um, we go in to them. And they start to check us in. And they say, oh, of course, what are you going to need? You're going to need stitches. So, all right, um, how do we do that? And the doctor says this to me. He says, I'm going to put her on a gurney. We're going to lock the wheels. You're going to get up on to the gurney over your daughter. You're going to put your hands on either side of her head as you kneel over her. And you're going to hold her head completely still while I stitch her up with this three inch long fish hook needle. And the whole time, because I'm doing this, I have to look straight into the eyes of my four year old daughter. Now, as a parent, how would you think you would feel as your daughter looks at you while someone pokes her over and over again with a four inch long fish hook? Katie hated me in that moment. I was stopping her from protecting herself, getting her hands up, pushing away this needle that was causing her harm. She was four years old. She didn't really understand. But it was one of those things where I knew for the benefit of my daughter that this was what I was supposed to do. And regardless of the fact that it broke my heart, and I remember I had tears coming down my face as I'm holding her head still, no matter that I was willing to do that for the benefit of her. In fact, that would be the least of things that I would do for my kids, for my wife, for the people that I love. I would be willing to do many things in order to help them, save them, and keep them from harm. 
We're in that sort of moment this morning as we dig into Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 21. We have a mother who's in that exact same sort of space, except the harm to her daughter is much more real than even a cut on her lip. The harm to her daughter is both spiritual, but also physical. She is a demon-possessed child. And this mother, I can imagine, for years has done anything and everything in order to try to help her child, and nothing has worked. And so at this point in the story, the story of this mother and her child, we see her being willing to do anything, and she, she gets this glimpse of this man who could possibly help. His name is Jesus. And Jesus might be able to change the story. And if Jesus is able to change the story, there is nothing that this woman would do. As we dig into God's word and discover what he has for us here, let's pray for his blessing and his presence. Father, meet us through the power of your word. Remind us of the faith of this woman. And also, Lord, in the faith of this woman, may we be transported to um, faith ourselves. May we be moved and reminded of the power that is at your disposal in our lives if we but ask. Lord, in that, challenge us, move us, transform us. Even encourage us and give us comfort if we need it. However you're going to be at work this morning, Lord, you do it. Because you're the only one who can. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 15. It's about one-third, one-quarter from the back of your Bible, right at the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four Gospels. Matthew, the first one, chapter 15, verse 21. It says this there. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, if we're going to read this story, let's get context. Let's understand, first of all, where it's happening. Tyre and Sidon. Now, Jesus has generally been doing the majority of his ministry in Galilee, very near the Sea of Galilee, in the sort of the, the, it's east of Jerusalem, it's further away from the Mediterranean by about maybe 40, 50 miles. It's a space that has basically the rural, it's the backwoods part of Israel. That's where the Galilee is. Tyre and Sidon are a completely different place. That is the 45, 50 miles towards the west. It's on the coast. It's actually right near the Mediterranean Sea. The question that I have even reading this, was Jesus taking a break? And in fact, if you look at the texts that come before this, Jesus has been going through a whole bunch of stuff with different people. In fact, if you go back to verse or chapter 14, you're going to see he's healing a ton of people who were, they were pressing upon him and wanting to touch his cloak and do anything they could in order to get near Jesus. And then he's doing some more teaching at the beginning of verse 15. He's being challenged. And you can imagine, I can imagine, especially being a person who who's heavily involved in ministry, there are times when it just gets exhausting. And especially because of the type of power that Jesus is exhibiting, it's 
certainly understandable that he took a beach break. He's doing the thing that many of you are doing in uh, maybe in weeks past and in the weeks to come. He's going to the beach and he's getting a breather because the work is heavy and it's big. And in fact, that's why he doesn't reply to her right away. Now, before we get to sort of the next part, we also have to ask the question about who this woman is. We never get her name. We only know that she is a Canaanite woman. Now, who are the Canaanites? They are people who live, oddly enough, in the region of Canaan. Canaanite, right? She's from the region of Canaan. And what is another name that we know from the text of Scripture for the region of Canaan? Do we know what it is? It's the Old Testament. The region of Canaan is the promised land. This is a woman who was living in the area of the promised land that had been promised by God to Moses from the beginning, to Abraham even from the beginning. This is the land filled with milk and honey. And this was the woman who was living in it. Now, let's do a little bit of a history lesson about the people of Canaan. Eventually, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and the beginning of the book of Joshua, Old Testament stuff, way back when, the people of Israel were going into the promised land. What did Jesus tell them to do with the people that they found there? Anyone? What was it? Kill them. Destroy them. If you go back to the book of Joshua, you will see when the people are entering the region of Canaan, the land of milk and honey, the promised land, that the Israelites were supposed to destroy everybody. Did they? Obviously they didn't. We have a Canaanite woman here. Somebody escaped, right? In fact, actually it wasn't that somebody escaped. The people of Israel simply decided to disobey God. And they decided that they were not going to destroy the people. And in fact, and it's a convoluted story and it's hard and it's complex ethically and morally to think God would destroy all these people. But the net result of their disobedience of God was that they got sucked into the worship of idols by the Canaanites. And eventually their idolatry, things like worshiping Baal and worshiping Asherah poles, ended up taking them further away from God. This woman represents the punishment of God for the people of Israel because the people had disobeyed. And was Jesus there when the people were entering the promised land back in the Old Testament? Yes, of course he was. Jesus was present. So you can imagine that when the Canaanite woman approaches him, even in his mind was there a, you shouldn't be alive. You shouldn't exist. And yet you do. I wonder what that sort of mental conversation, and again, I understand, it's messy. It might move your mind to places that it shouldn't go, but these are thoughts that I have about a story like this. How would Jesus respond to a Canaanite, a person who should not exist because his father had said to the Israelites, destroy them, and now she's come to him asking for help. The story continues, verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying after us. 
us, crying out after us. I think that's where Jesus is in that moment of saying almost to the Father, what do you want me to do here? You have called me to come and show your story and show yourself and show your power to Israel, but this is a woman of Canaan. That's not Israel. She's not a Jew. What is it that I'm supposed to do with her, especially because, go back, and what does she say to him? She says to him in verse 22, she says this, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. I can imagine Jesus going to the Father and saying, what do you want me to do with her, especially because she's confessing faith in me that none of the Jews have. She's actually doing the stuff that you are longing for me to do in Israel by claiming me as Lord. She's claiming me as her Lord. That's what I'm here to do for the Jews. And yet here's this woman who should not be alive doing exactly that. What am I supposed to do with this? Now, I'm sure Jesus wasn't confused. But I also wonder what that conversation between him and his father looked like. He's the triune God. Those are the sorts of things in their interactions. There would be some of that. There is some of that sort of interaction. And it's certainly challenging to think about. But what we find out is that dogged persistence actually works. Don't we? We know that dogged persistence works. How many of you have a three-year-old, four-year-old, or a five-year-old? You know what dogged persistence looks like, don't you? I want this. I want a, okay, it's summer outside. I want, um, what are they called? An otter pop, right? If they want an otter pop and you're not willing to give them an otter pop, how many times will you hear, I want an otter pop? You're going to hear it hundreds of times. And how many of you have given in to that? Moms, admit it. Thank you, Kim. Kim's honest. How many moms have given in? (laughs) Colton's over there raising his mom's hand. Yeah, I got you, mom. I took you over. Persistence works. I'll never forget. There was a time, again, Katie's story. Katie's not here. We can do this. We were at a family camp, and it was 8.30 at night. Katie's bedtime at that point, she was young enough. Her bedtime was 8 o'clock. It was 8.30 at night. It was going dark, and she was exhausted. She had been at a day camp all day. She was just wiped out, so tired. But she wanted to go get ice cream at the fountain, this place where it had ice cream and some treats and stuff. She wanted to go to the fountain, and we said, no, we're going to go to the fountain tomorrow night. Or maybe we'll go the next night, or maybe we'll go, the, we'll go to the fountain, but we're just not going to go tonight. You ever had the kid meltdown? That's what happened. Like, she absolutely lost it. And my daughter, when she loses it, unfortunately, because her and I have this sort of interesting relationship, it drives me bananas when she is no no longer capable of having a conversation because she's so emotional and so overwrought that she can't even talk anymore. That's where she was, and it was just driving me crazy. I can remember sitting on the step of this cabin that we were in, and I was trying to rub her back, and she wanted nothing to do with it, and she goes, I just want to go to the fountain. I just want to go get ice cream. I just want to go. I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. Now, I was strong. And we didn't go. Until the next night, and then we went for sure. Because there was no way I was going through that again. 
dogged persistence works. And the reality of it is, your dogged persistence works with God. But it doesn't work simply because you don't stop asking. We certainly know the parable of Jesus, of the persistent widow, right? A widow goes to the judge and asks for justice, and she doesn't stop coming to him and asking for justice. And eventually, because she is persistent, the judge gives her justice, even though he doesn't really want to. Certainly, that's a part of the story. But there's something else going on here that's really, really important. And that's what we're going to get in the second half of the story. Verse 24 says this. He answered, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, what's important for us to see here is not just that the woman persists, but how she persists. And there's three things that are key here. The first one I've already mentioned. It comes in verse 22. It says this, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, if you heard that from somebody in your life who didn't know Jesus, what would you call that? That's a profession of faith, right? If someone says with their heart, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. They're in a sense saying, I'm going to put you up there. You are important. You are God, Lord. But it doesn't stop there. The second one comes in verse, let's see here, verse 25. It says this, the woman came and what? Knelt. So first of all, we get a confession And then we get a kneeling. She is going before God, going before Jesus, and she's saying, I am submitting to you, but it doesn't stop there. It finishes with her last words. It says, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. That's a confession. Then we have a kneeling. That's the next step of her confession. And finally, we have her saying, you are master. She is fully and completely submitting to the, world, to the will and to the power of Christ. And that's the work that Christ came to do. And he came to do it, yes, for Israel. But the fact that this woman, in her persistence, is willing to go through the process of transformation, of submitting to God, and being able to say to God, I give you everything. You are my master. The fact that those are her last words to Jesus, really in essence is saying, I'm giving you everything. Actually sounds like a commandment, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all. She is submitting her all to Jesus. See, that's why persistence with God might work. Not because we're persistent, but because within our persistence, God might be transforming us. How many 
of you have things in your life that you have gone before God in order for him to change and transform and fix 10, 20, 30 times the same thing? Me too. And here's what I know. I know that the first time that I ask God to change, transform, and move there, that I am a very different person now in having that same request. God has done work in me. And that work has brought me closer and more deeply into relationship with Him. That more and more and more of me confesses before God, before Jesus Christ, you are my master. And I would even hazard a guess to say to all of us, including myself, perhaps the reason that God has not changed that particular part of your story is because you still have more change and transformation ahead. God is using it to be at work in you. Which really stinks sometimes. God, take away this cancer. Of course, we don't want that cancer in our life. We don't want that cancer in our friend's life, our our family's life, the person that we care about's life. But within that persistence, God might be moving us and transforming us and changing us. And out of that comes greater beauty than if God answered our request right at the very beginning. Part of it is God loves us enough to sometimes say, no, not yet in order that we can get to a place that when he says yes, it's because we've been changed and transformed by those things. And I understand that for some of you, that is not nearly comfort enough. But understand this, that within that time of persistence and transformation, that God is with you. That God is present. That God is powerfully involved in your life. And he is simply asking you and I to submit more and more to him to ultimately be able along with the woman to say and call him master this all pays off verse 28 says this then jesus said to her woman you have great faith your request is granted and her father and her daughter was healed at that moment now here's something that i want you to see and This is one of the reasons actually why we encourage you to be a part of the daily devotional that we send out every day. If you've been reading along with the daily devotional, um, this week we started the book of Hebrews. Is anyone reading those? I hope you are. In the book of Hebrews, right at the beginning of the book, I think it's the end of chapter 1, the beginning of verse 2, we hear about a specific role that Jesus has. He is the great mediator of our faith. Do you remember that? For those of you who did devotion, he's the mediator. Here we have a picture of that already, even before Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Christ is already in this spot living as mediator. Why? How do we know that? Because he is between the woman and the father and he, in that mental conversation that I was talking about earlier, he's thinking about this Canaanite woman who shouldn't exist, but here she is confessing faith in Jesus as her Lord, her master, and in essence, her great mediator. And you can imagine in that mental conversation that Jesus and the father are having, he's saying, Lord, Father, one who who created all, you sent me in order to do the work that you want me to do here on earth. 
And that is to bring people to faith and confess me as Lord. Here's this lady. Here she is. And she's doing exactly that. Save her, Lord. Give her what she needs. This is not just about the woman's daughter being healed. This is about the woman herself being saved and redeemed. This is a great Gentile, non-Jewish, confession of faith. Christ is already transforming the world, even pre-Pentecost, when all the Spirit goes out. Now, this is what this woman is willing to do. She's willing to do this in faith. What are we willing to do in faith? What are you willing to do? See, that's part of the challenge that we have with being so comfortable in our world. How many of you have a car that you'll be able to drive home with in after service today? All right, all you do. How many of you think it will probably break down and explode on the way home? None of you. Need is taken care of. How many of you want to go home, when you go home, will have food in your cupboard? Right? You're going to have a bed to sleep in tonight. You're going to have a house over your head. Some of us have particular challenges in those areas, but most of us know the reality that needs are cared for. You have a job tomorrow. Or you have, you have, you have generally good health within the congregation. All of these things, we're in a world of comfort. We're in a world in which our needs are taken care of. Either through our own hard work or yes, through God's providence in our hard work. However, here's the challenge. That's a barrier to faith, friends. It's a barrier to faith. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes we see the church growing in third world nations much more than it does in first world nations. Because we don't have to live in faith every day. I don't have to live in faith that when I pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. I don't have to pray that believing or trusting that God will give me daily bread because I already have it in my refrigerator. Everything's set. Which means, friends, for us to continue to ask the question, Lord, all these other needs are met. All these things in my life, you are present in. And yes, sometimes it's harder than others. I get it. But, friends, the challenge for us, if we are called to grow as people in faith, is to ask the question, then where is that? And where is that? And perhaps it is in having some of those conversations with people in your life who you want to share with them Christ or hope or life or purpose. Perhaps it is making a change or transformation in your life to be obedient to God's calling and you doing something else, something different. I'm going to call him out this morning. He's here. Greg walked into my office this week. Greg, the administrator of this church. And he sat in my office and a conversation that I was expecting to happen maybe a year or a year and a half from now happened on Tuesday, I think. Wednesday. And Greg said, Nancy and I have been praying. And we've been praying and asking God to open up um, the opportunity for us to do some different things. The net result is that Greg gave his notice and at the end of July, he is going to be stepping away as our church administrator. But he's doing it in faith. 
He's doing it because God has called he and Nancy to live into a different world. Greg is not a wealthy man, right Greg? You're not a super wealthy man. He has needs. He, has, he would certainly probably appreciate a regular income. But it's going to change now because God has called. And now in God's calling, there's obedience. And it's uncomfortable, I'm sure. And there's some fear and there's some challenge. For all of us to ask that question for ourselves, where is God calling you and I in faith? I know some places where God is calling me. And those are scary places. Those are things that give me pause and challenge me and even bring me fear. Some of the conversations that I have in my life, sometimes it's like God is saying, I want you to say this and me and God have arguments. I actually sent a text to one of the elders of this church a couple of weeks ago and I said, God and I are having an argument right now because there's something that I don't want to do. But I know he's calling me to do it, so I'm going to do it. Sometimes we have that, but it means, friends, that we are willing to move forward and be in that process of submitting more and more and more to Christ. He's calling all of us deeper to faith. That's who he is. Hebrews 11, which shows us the great hall of fame of faith. Each one of those people was consistently and constantly called deeper to faith in Christ We are too. That's us. So for us to go from this place this morning and be challenged by a woman who shouldn't exist but who was persistent in being willing to be transformed by Christ, for us to look at her example and then ask our Father, our Savior, the Holy Spirit, what is it that you call me to do? so that I might express my faith in you. That's good work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of this woman. We don't even know her name. But we know her story. And we also know, Lord, that her confession of faith teaches us that someday we will see her in your presence continuing to glorify you, kneel before you, call you Lord and Master. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that her story might inspire and challenge us. That, Lord, in that inspiration and challenge, we might go from this place, looking for those places, listening to your voice in our life, hearing the promptings that you have on our heart to places of faith, and, Lord, in those places that we would be willing to encourage, be obedient. In submission to you, kneel before you and say, yes, I will. I will go. I will speak. I will give. I will give up myself. Because you are my master. Lord, equip us to that end through the power of the Spirit. And we pray in your name. Amen.